Thank you so much for gathering here this morning and thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Uh, this morning, my name is Jamie. It is my great privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, it's my great joy and privilege to open up God's word with you this morning as uh, we dive back into a series called uh, Witnesses. All right, it's a study through the book of Acts. And so I uh, need to kind of catch you up to speed uh, a bit on, on this. But before even doing that, just we need to take a quick survey. All right, uh, if you think the Patriots are gonna win, raise your hand. There you go, all right. If you think the Rams are gonna win, raise your hand. If you're like, I don't care, raise your hand. If you're like, the Detroit Lions will never be in it, raise your hand. All right, there we go, so that's me. All right, but really glad uh, that, that you're here. And last fall, for about 14 or 15 weeks, we began a study through the book of Acts uh, as a sort of survey to, to look at like how did the church get started and what's the calling of the church and what are we to be about here a couple thousand years Later, And so for about 14, 15 weeks or so, like I said, we journeyed through that. And then we stopped for Advent, had an Advent series, and then our January series where we looked at the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. And now we want to pick back up with the book of Acts as we kind of still get into the, the, the new year. We're kind of launching back into this, and we, we're picking up the story in a place where the church is beginning to expand. We're going to look at this monumentally influential church th this morning that's based in Antioch. And so we'll talk about that more in a moment, but because it's been several months, um, I want to give a quick just sort of recap, and maybe if you're, this is your first time here or you don't know anything about the book of Acts, uh, I want to kind of help catch you up to speed uh, as well, and then just know anything that we've preached and taught through, there's all the sermons are on our website as well, but the book of Acts begins this way. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. And so we just gotta stop there for a moment and say, okay, so apparently we're in the second book. There was a first book. And the first book was written by a guy named Luke. And so Luke gives this account, all right? So if you open up your Bible in the New Testament, you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right? So this is, Acts is the second book that he wrote. And Luke is writing to a friend, this guy named Theophilus, all right? And he cares deeply for him, so much so that he wants to lay out for him this account of all that Jesus did, the things that he taught about his, his birth, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all right? So he lays this out for his friend. But the story's not over, and so he writes this second book. And so we get to study this as a, a way to kind of listen in and say, okay, the things that he was telling his dear friend Theophilus, he's also communicating, that God is communicating through his servant Luke to us here this morning in 2019, sitting in a gymnasium in Winter Park, Florida, there is this calling for us as well. And so it says, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's looking back at the first account called Luke, and it says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that language there is really key. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That it refers to this ongoing work. So yes, he began it, but it's still continuing. And so the idea of the book of Acts, and the reason we called it Witnesses, is this idea that is embedded in this book is that we get to witness how Jesus continues to work. Sometimes Luke is thought of as like it's about Jesus and now the book of Acts is about the church, but that would be a misreading of it. It still is all about Jesus. In fact, the whole Bible's all about Jesus, and it's how Jesus is still working. Now, he's ascended up into heaven, and that's how the book of Acts very quickly starts out, that Jesus ascends and he tells his disciples, I need you to, to go, all right, to go out into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, and I need this thing to spread. 
And so we begin to see that. We see Peter, the apostle Peter, getting up very early and he preaches a sermon and some 3,000 people get saved and it says they're cut to the heart and they're like, cry out, like, what do we do? And he tells them to repent and to be baptized, to trust in the Lord Jesus. And so Acts is this opportunity for us to witness how Jesus is still at work. And that's the first component. But the second component is we also then are invited to bear witness. So we get to witness what Jesus has been doing, all right? And the fact that you're here this morning, that I'm here, that the church is continuing all over the world, that there are millions of Christians this morning that are gathering to worship King Jesus is bearing witness to the fact that Jesus has been faithful to build his church. And then we also are invited to to bear witness, to speak of the grace of God, to tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives not to point them to us and like, look at us and we fixed ourselves and we got a good plan together. No, no, no. We point people to Jesus and we simply confess like, apart from the grace of God, like I'm a wretched, miserable person. Like I couldn't make it into God's presence. I can't do this on my own, but Jesus has saved me. So the book of Acts is this awesome opportunity for us to look at like, how is Jesus continuing to build his church. And so I want to start this, this morning with a question, if we, and as we get further into this, I'll introduce, as we get into the text even this morning, certain names and uh, key figures that show up, I'll try and explain that in case they're new to you as well. But just think through this question for a moment. What comes to mind when you picture a beautiful church? So let your mind go for just a moment, like, hey, what are some of the things, like, what's the image that comes in your mind? You know, I'm sure you're like, a gymnasium that's typically cold with a $10 plastic seat that I'm sitting in, right? Maybe that's your, your picture, but what comes to mind? And you know, maybe it's some beautiful cathedral. Maybe you've seen something like this. You've got to you know, tour one of these places before. Maybe you tend to think of something that's like, hey, it's got this beautiful stained glass windows. I don't know what comes to mind. And those are all beautiful components of the architecture of a church. But if we're going to talk about how the Bible talks about a church, and this is a little bit of just a you know, trick question of, of sorts, is a beautiful church is less about the, the building, and we're not anti-building, it's great to be able to have a space to gather. The reality is this, a beautiful church is a church that's centered on the gospel, that everything is about the person and work of Jesus, about this proclamation of the, the good news, all right? And so we wanna explain that, we wanna unpack that. Every time we gather, whether it be here at the YMCA or we gather in groups and classes that meet throughout the week and you're having conversations with, with friends over coffee or whatever it looks like, we want it to be centered on the gospel. A healthy, beautiful, flourishing church is centered on the gospel. And it's so easy to get off track. And so this is what I love about the book of Acts and that we get to dive back into it. Even as last week we celebrated 10 years as a church family here in Winter Park, all right, we gotta keep pressing forward and we've got to always come back to the thing that it was centered on from the very beginning. What it needs to continue to be centered on is who Jesus is, about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever been to what we call our Meet Crosspoint gathering, just as a quick introduction to the church, we always share this, this quote, and we talk about the reality of the gospel. And there's this short summation by Tim Keller as he talks about the gospel. Let me read this to you. It says, because this will be key, because this morning as we look at a beautiful church, we're going to look at this incredibly influential church in Antioch. And it's fair to say, had Antioch not been faithful to be the church, like, who knows how the story would, would have gone? Because out of Antioch, Paul went on his missionary journeys that the gospel began to spread to the known world at the time, eventually making it all the way to Rome. And so there's this huge impact that this church had. It wasn't a perfect church, 
but it was a sending church. It was a church centered on the gospel. So we got to define that. So this morning, we're going to look at what is a beautiful, healthy church, and it comes back to the gospel, that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, so it's all about Jesus, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him. So if we just stop there, here's the reality. You and I have a massive problem. The problem is we're created to be in the presence of God and we can't get there on our own because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, the brokenness that exists, not just out there in the world, but it's in my heart, it's in your heart. We carried it in here this morning. And so God has to send his son on this rescue mission. And so as we talk about the gospel, as we talk about being a healthy, vibrant, flourishing church, we've got to go back to this, that everything is centered around the gospel, about who Jesus is. So he rescues us. He fully accomplishes salvation for us. Now, that's not a popular sentiment because it means, hey, you and I needed to be rescued. And yet the reality, so here's the, 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 the difficult news on the one hand, is like you and I are in such bad shape that like God had to die for us, that he had to send his son to die for us. And yet you're so loved that the God of the universe was willing to send his son to die for you, to bring you back in, to restore relationship with you. And so there's this very personal component. But then it says this, from, rescues us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and with his, his people is the idea here. And then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever, that God is building something. There's this movement. It wasn't just so you could be rescued and it's like you and Jesus and you're cool now, but rather you're invited to be part of his family, this body that is the church, and that one day God is gonna renew, restore everything. And in the meantime, we get to be part of that movement, pointing people to the reality of the gospel. And so as we talk this morning, we're gonna look at three components, all right? We're gonna look at a healthy, a beautiful church is one that has gospel breadth, meaning it's expanding, that it has gospel depth, all right? And that it has a gospel generosity, that these things characterize the church in Antioch. And my prayer is for us that more and more we would be shaped by these things, that we'd be known by these things. And so Acts chapter 11 is where we pick up the, the story this morning. And so if you're using a Bible, uh, or if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you, if you want to use one of the ones provided here, there's some paperbacks on the back tables, and you can turn to page 1019. Or if you have your phone with you, go to cpwp.life, and the second card you see as you swipe over says message notes. Anything that is up on the screen this morning is listed there the text that we'll be in, space to take notes, any quotes, questions, things are there. But Acts chapter 11 is where we pick this up and we start to learn about this church that's in Antioch. So I wanna read these verses here, 19 to 30, and then we'll circle back and kind of go through them section by section. But as I read, would you go ahead and stand as we read God's word this morning? Acts chapter 11, being in 19, I'll read these words. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25, so Barnabas 
He went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up, and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the land. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so as we get into this, we're going to look at this invitation, not just for a church back then, but for us here as well. All right. And just praying that God what he's been doing over the last 10 years, that he would continue, that we would grow in these areas, that we would be more and more known as a church that's centered on the gospel, that it's beautiful not because of a facility, but it's beautiful because of what God is doing in and through his people through the work of of God's spirit. And so the first thing that we see about a healthy, a beautiful church is that there's this this spreading of the, the gospel. There's a gospel breadth, all right? And these things that we'll look at this morning, sometimes people think that there's a tension. It's like, well, you're either trying to reach new people, you're trying to grow people in depth, or you're trying to engage in in mercy and justice and love like out in the community. And sometimes it's like, well, I'm in this camp and I'm in this camp or I'm in this camp. And the reality is they all belong to Jesus. And Jesus is calling us not to fixate on one, but to say a healthy church has all of these elements. And if you get overwhelmed by that, like we actually should feel a little overwhelmed because we can't do this in our strength. That's why we have to see Throughout this text, throughout all of Scripture, it's about the hand of the Lord, that God is at work. But God loves to work through men and women that admit their brokenness, their need, and say, I don't know even what I have to offer, but what I do, I I lay it at your feet, Jesus, and I'm asking you to use me. And so he's looking for that. And so there's this movement here. And the way that this starts out is, look back over 19 to 21. There was persecution. It happened several chapters before. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's killed. And the church is, again, how God works. You think he's not at work through suffering and, and pain. He always is. And because of this persecution, the people have to leave the area that they're in. And so they start going to new places. And it tells us that they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so early on, these group of believers, they go and they end up in places like Antioch and they look for people, all right, because there, there were you know, kind of pockets of, of Jewish people in that particular city. I'll talk about that city, some of the details more in a moment. But initially, they're just like, hey, well, let us tell you about Jesus. But they went to people that spoke like them, looked like them, had some of the same culture, background, those sorts of things. But God's heart, God's intention, he started with the Jewish people, but it's always been he blessed them so that they would be a blessing. God's intentions have always been for the spreading, the proclamation of his gospel of the kingdom. All right, and so verse 20, but it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the idea there is this is a group of people then that show up and say, another way to translate Hellenists would be this idea like, They're Greeks or they're Gentiles. They're people that are not Jewish. And so they look out and they're like, well, yeah, the Jews need to know about Jesus and trust in him, but so does everybody else. And so right away, there's this broadening of the audience. There's this embracing of like, we're called, all right? Even in the midst of suffering, they could have sat back and been like, this is terrible. We had to leave our homeland. We, because of persecution, we had to go, poor us, woe is us. They could have felt bad for themselves, but instead, what do they do? 
They might have had some of that, but they show up in new places and they talk about the hope that they have. They talk about the reality of Jesus in their life and how he's sustaining them. My guess is they would have looked and said, well, if Jesus suffered, all right, he told us we were gonna take up our cross to follow after him, all right, that this is part of it, that there's gonna be suffering and difficulty, but God has not abandoned us, that God works. If God could work through the cross, he can work through any and all situations. And so they begin to take this message. Now, the place that they go is key for us to understand. Because if we look at it, we're like Antioch, and maybe you don't tend to know much about that place, and you're just like, okay, that's just a name in the Bible. And you might think, well, yeah, maybe they were predisposed to, to believe this message that was just a very God-fearing place. You need to blow that image up, all right? Like Antioch, a couple different things. It was regarded as kind of the third most influential city in the Roman world, third largest behind Rome and Alexandria, right? Had over half a million people that resided in this place. Incredibly successful commercially with some of the trade routes, very uh, cosmopolitan. I mean, people coming from all the known parts of the world would dwell there. There was a bit of a Jewish population, but it was by far the minority there. So you had all these people from all different places with all sorts of perspectives, and most of them were importing as well, not just their cultural background or language, but also the gods that they worshiped. And so in that time and place, very much a, a view of many gods, all right? And it's in this place that the gospel goes forward. It's in this place that not only does it have a, it's not like it has just a little bit of an impact, it becomes the epicenter from where Christianity moves out from. And so I hope this encourages you. In fact, we tend, I know I can tend to like look at things sometimes and be like, oh, it's, it's really bad. Or this, you know, maybe you hear the narrative, oh, it's so much worse now than it was. No, like, listen, things have always been very jacked up from the very beginning. Just open your Bible. You don't have to get very far to realize that. And yet God works. And there was a phrase, though, around this time that referred to when there, people talked about Antioch. This shows you a bit of like how depraved, though, it was. They would refer to it in reference. They talk about the morals of Daphne, all right? And not only was this place, this city, large and growing and, you know, cosmopolitan and all, all these things, it was also incredibly immoral. In fact, just the pagans in that world, like they actually were like, oh, Antioch, like really? Like they, they actually had a bit of like kind of shock about the things that took place there. And there was this phrase that developed because Daphne was there was this one that uh, one of the gods, Apollos, that he in the, the mythology chased after, all right? And so let me read you this summary from Kent Hughes. He talks about this temple that existed just outside of town. It says, Antioch was most famous for its worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles outside of town in a laurel grove. In Apollo's uh, famous pursuit of Daphne, they were reenacted night and day by the men of the city and by the priestesses, who were in fact ritual prostitutes. Throughout the world, the morals of Daphne was a euphemism for depravity. I'm not gonna go into all the details there, but I think there's enough there that you can sort of you know, begin to think through, okay, so that's a different church service that they would have. There's this temple and these things were reenacted and there's cult prostitutes and all of this, all right? And so that's the common practice in the day. This is where these disciples show up and the gospel has an impact. I mean, one of the things I think we gotta wrestle through is maybe think about it this way, like what's your, what's our Antioch? And maybe for you, that's a particular person that you're just like, I can't ever imagine them coming to trust in Jesus. Or maybe you look at a whole neighborhood or just a, an entire, you know, just network that, that you have. 
Maybe you look at you know, the campus God has placed you at and you just think, man, it is just bad here, right? And I don't know how there can actually be an impact for the gospel. God loves to surprise us. God loves to work in the places that we would never have picked. If we were strategizing this, I don't think we would have said, let's go to Antioch, right? Because the people there are incredibly receptive. More than likely, most God-fearing people would have been like, well, we can't go there. I mean, the morals of Daphne, right? Like, let's not go to that place. Let's go somewhere else. And this is where God chose to go. And so the calling of the Christian, a calling for a healthy church, for us as the family of God, is to be about this work. We looked at it last week of mission, of evangelism, of sharing the gospel, Now, it doesn't have to be shouting on a street corner. We left the magic game last night. We were walking down Church Street at the intersection of Church Street in Orange, and I'm like, what is that noise? And there was the guy with the sign about hell and the the bullhorn, the loudspeaker, yelling out over all the crowd. Like, listen, like, I'm not espousing that that's the strategy, but I will commend the guy, at least, that he's out there. It's easy for me to critique it and then just sort of sit back in my house, you know, just watching the game and just, you know, critiquing the people that are out, out there. And so what does it look like for us to be a church that engages people, to not retreat. Jesus talked about this over and over again. And one of the places where he talks about it, and he uses this image, he tells us as the church, it's in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he talks about us being the salt of the earth. And the idea of salt was that it was a preserving agent, all right? And that part of it, as we look out, here would have been the critique. Antioch, it wasn't just to point a finger at them and be like, I can't believe that you know, morals of Daphne, here they are, wicked and depraved and doing all those things. Part of that is on the church. So when we look out over our cultural context and we're like, I can't believe how wicked this is or this is way worse in this generation than, it, than it's ever been, part of that is on us as the church not embracing our calling to be salt because salt has to get in. Like they would use it on meat and they literally would sort of push in the salt in order to preserve that piece of meat. There wasn't refrigeration, those sorts of things. So this is the image that Jesus uses. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be trampled, uh, anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We want to be used by God, and part of the calling for us as the church is to be salt. And in order to do that, it actually has to have contact with that which it's seeking to preserve. So for us as the church, it means we have to be out there. That doesn't mean you're just like the world, all right? We need to be so closely tethered to Jesus that we can go out into the world, all right? We're not seeking to be just like the world. We're seeking to be a counterculture, but we actually do engage people. We love people. When these disciples, these early disciples showed up in Antioch, I'm sure there were all kinds of things that were shocking and discouraging and probably thinking, what in the world do we do with this? And yet they did the one thing that they knew to do. I need to tell them about Jesus. They didn't try and clean up the people of Antioch before giving them the message. They didn't say, if you just clean up your act a little bit, then God will love you. They just gave them the gospel and trusted that once these people experienced Jesus, the Holy Spirit would take up residence in their life like he has in their lives and in our lives as followers of Jesus, and he would begin to do that sort of growth and that sanctification and that that work. So church, are we being salt? And then it ends here in this section. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so, yes, we engage. Yes, we press in. But the calling to remember is this, that it's the hand of the Lord. They were faithful to go and tell people about Jesus. 
There wasn't a certain number they were trying to reach. They didn't view themselves as a success if the certain number of people got converted. They just simply were like, well, my calling is just to be faithful. And what was true of them is true of you and me if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's be the salt. Let's have some contact with the world that believes differently, maybe behaves differently, thinks differently than we do. And trust the hand of the Lord is going to work. You don't save anybody. Like that pressure is off of you. Like sometimes people are like, when we have this idea of God's sovereignty, that's what this passage is talking about right here. The sovereign hand of God. And there can sometimes be a critique. Like, well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you're just not gonna do evangelism. No, no, no. This actually fuels evangelism. This frees us up. Because the pressure's off of me. I just get to be a faithful witness. And if God chooses to save that person, all right, great. It's not on you. You can lay your head down on the pillow at night, rest well if you've been a faithful witness because you're not responsible for changing somebody's heart, changing the trajectory of their life. We don't possess the ability to take a dead person and make them alive, to have a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh that beats for King Jesus. That's, that's God's work. So we trust in the sovereignty of God. We rest in the sovereignty of God. And we see God at work. And so there's this gospel breath, but look how the story continues. There's also than this calling. Like if you're hearing that and there's part of you that's just like, okay, all these people are getting saved, but who's gonna disciple them? Who's gonna invest in them? They got a lot of growth to do. Like we see that here as well, all right? So look at verses 22 to 26. So the report of this, meaning that there's all these Gentiles that are coming to faith, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they get wind of it, all right? And that's kind of up until this point had been the epicenter. That's where things had started, all right? And so the, the core leadership would have been in that area and they're like, what in the world is happening? All right? And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They're like, hey, Barnabas, you need to go check this out. Like, what? Find out what's happening there. And it doesn't tell us if they were like in a, with a posture of celebration, go see, bring us a good report. Maybe they were a little bit, you know, hesitant about the whole thing. Maybe they were a little bit like, no, this can't really be happening, can it? We're not really sure. But they send Barnabas. And so it continues. Look at verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So as we look back at this passage, one of the things I want to ask us to think through, and this ties to Barnabas. We've met him earlier in the book of Acts, all right? He's this servant of the Lord. His name that he's been given is Barnabas, literally means son of encouragement, okay? So apparently, he is a guy that, like, you want to show up. He's not gonna shut the party down, all right? Like, he's, he's not the wet blanket and everything. He's the guy that, he's, he's a son of encouragement. And what I find so interesting is this is who the Lord Jesus determines to send. There's this new church. It's just getting started in the middle of Antioch and the morals of Daphne and all of the, these things, right? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, shows up. And I think it's important for us to stop and ask, like, why did this man, like, what could we learn from that? And maybe a question for us to wrestle through is like, hey, would you and I, would we have been the one that would have been picked? Would we have been sent? Meaning this, would you have shown up there like Barnabas and seeing the grace of God? Like, look at that language again. When he came and he saw the grace of God. That's how it describes his interaction there. Now, just think with me for a moment. Do you think when Barnabas showed up that 
everything was perfectly harmonious. The people were perfectly sanctified. They were so like obedient to the scriptures that all the immorality had left, that everything was as God intended it to be. It was like there's Jesus and just below them were the Christians in Antioch. I mean, do we really think for a moment that that's what he walked into? He would have walked into a church that would have had utter confusion and chaos still like, okay, we've trusted in Jesus, but we don't know what to do. There would have been people that made their livelihood in incredible immoral ways. Okay, what do we do now? Do we gotta get a new job? All right, there would have been relationships. There would have been you know, marriages maybe where, where things weren't, weren't right. There would have been all sorts of things that Barnabas would have stepped into. And because he's somebody that was further along and he had some maturity about him, I'm sure there were things that were just going off. They're like, oh my gosh, like this person over here and this person, and oh my gosh, what's going on with this group? And have you seen that community group on that church, right? Like there would have been all sorts of chaos. And yet it tells us when he came, he saw the grace of God. He's an encourager. He was glad. And so he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so even after he shows up, the Lord continues to add. And I love that language, that he was a, a man of faith. And I don't think that's just speaking about, well, yeah, he's trusted in Jesus, although it includes that. I believe he has a faith that Jesus said that, hey, he's gonna build his church, he's gonna build his people, he's gonna invest in them, he's gonna give them the spirit, and that over time, there will be growth. So think about it for a moment. How would you have responded? How would I have responded if I had been there? Maybe another way to think about this, this question, like would you have been sent? Would you have been the one that was picked? They picked him, I believe, that God picked him because he's an encourager. So are you a critic or are you an encourager. Like, what's your natural disposition? I don't think it takes a whole lot to walk into a place and see all the things that are wrong. It's easy to deconstruct. It's easy to tear things down. I think it's much more difficult to say, okay, I see all of that, but I got to just stop and talk about the grace of God. And that doesn't mean he turns a blind eye to it. We're going to see how this passage continues. Like, there's some serious discipleship intentionality that's taking place. In fact, he goes and gets Saul, who if you're not tracking with who that is, that's the Apostle Paul, all right? So now your community group, your Bible study is being led by Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, all right? Like, okay, there's some serious depth that's gonna be taking place. But I love that it starts with the son of encouragement. What's your disposition? And this is reality. Like, I just think we can naturally be critics, I serve on the mission committee here at the Y. It's a great privilege to serve. Uh, a while back, we got out there on the board. There is um, information about the mission committee and the church, and um, there's prayer requests things. And so uh, we unlocked those and took those out, and I tell you, about a third of them, all right, there's prayer requests, and then about the other third were just complaints. It's too cold in the locker room. The spin room bike is broken. Uh, can you fix this? Like, this is not a complaint box. It's a prayer request box, right? Like, I guess I'll pray for the treadmill. Like, I don't know what to do with that, right? Um, but it's just this natural discipline. And hey, listen, I, I do the same thing. I might not have filled out one of those, all right? But the reality is, like, it's so easy to see what's wrong. Barnabas saw things that were wrong. Don't believe for a moment that he didn't. But he stopped and he started with the evidences of God's grace. So there might be somebody that you're discipling, you're meeting with, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I wish they were further along and things, but before that, like, see, God's working. 
The fact that you got somebody to even talk with you, to meet with, that will even engage a bit in a conversation that is remotely interested in the things of God, it's an evidence of God's grace. Praise God for that. Doesn't mean you don't desire for more. And so, are you a critic or an encourager? The Apostle Paul, he's writing to a guy named Timothy, all right, in this letter of 1 Timothy, says these words. Here is a man, because chapter one, he even talks to Timothy. He's like a fan into flame. Like, remember the hands that were laid on you. Like, you've got a calling, you've got a gift. Imagine how encouraging and motivating this would have been for Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes to him, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Because probably, here's Timothy, he's called the lead and he's got people that are even older than him, more mature than him in many ways. All right, he might've been like, ah, I, got, I gotta wait my turn. He's like, don't let anybody despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example. He's like, so you're not even just out kind of in the background. I need you out ahead, setting an example for all the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So don't just do that on your own by yourself. Like public reading, you got a crowd, you got some people, you're having some influence to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Think for a moment. Your young Timothy, he's described, he's a little timid at times. All right, he's a guy that does need some encouragement. And the apostle Paul, man, it's like reaching through the, the pen and the paper and grabbing him by the shoulders and being like, you've been appointed by God. He's not trying to puff him up with some sort of self-esteem nonsense that just says, you're an amazing person. Like, he's like, no, like Timothy, like, listen, you need the grace of God, but I'm just telling you, I see evidences of God's grace. I see the work. I see what God's called you to do. You may not see it right now, but I see it. I see the influence. I see what God's gonna do in and through you. Wouldn't you wanna be on the receiving end of that? What if we were a church that was characterized more by that, not of just seeing the places of gaps where it's like, oh, we're not measuring up, but rather we see not the potential in themselves, but we see the potential in this person when the Holy Spirit begins to work and to move. I see you discipling other people. I see you having an impact. I see you as an evangelist. Me? Me who doesn't even know what to communicate, like you see that in other people. I see you leading this group. I see you having an impact in your, your workplace. I see you being that city on a hill, that light in your neighborhood. I see you being the house in the neighborhood where people come to when everything is going wrong and they don't know where else to turn. They're coming to you. Like imagine that sort of culture where it's like, wow, like there are people, we're helping each other see that. And it's not to so we get all puffed up. It's like, no, it's only to the grace of God. Like we've been given certain gifts. One of the great gifts that you guys, you gave to us last week, all right, was an entire box full of just letter and card after, after card uh, to my wife and I after just kind of celebrating and reflecting back on 10 years as a church. And it was a great joy. This, can I just, I want to thank you for it. And also just, it speaks to this theme. Letter after letter after letter of encouragement. Now, Here's the deal. If an email had gone out that week and said, hey, I need you to send in letters and emails and notes of critique of Jamie, I am not naive. I do believe you could have come up with something, right? Please don't send that next week either, all right? But it's like I got a happy box and a sad box. Like, all right, anyway, but 
So I don't walk around thinking that there's no critique. In 10 years, right, I don't think, oh, there's been no leadership mistakes or every sermon. It's like there's a Sermon on the Mount and then the 10-year catalog of what Jamie's preached, right? Like I don't walk around thinking that. And there are blind spots that I have, so there are things that you could critique me on that I've never thought of. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that's true. And the other things, that you're, I'm like, oh, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than you think, right? Like, so there's all of that is true. But to get these letters and to read through them, was just an encouragement. And I loved it. It was like, wow, like I, I wish everybody could have this. There's the, it's fuel for mission. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not things we have to talk about or critique and all that. And like, we can critique and exhort and rebuke and love. And I, I get it. Like, all of that is needed. But the gospel frees us to do that. But what if we started here of like evidences of God's grace? It would be fuel for mission. And then it says this. So Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So here's this gospel depth, all right? He's encouraging them. There's more people coming to faith. He's ministering to them. But what I love about this, and this is what the gospel frees us to do, because Barnabas could have made the story about him. Think about it. Everybody needs Barnabas. Everybody is looking to him. Everybody's got questions. Everybody wants to be in Barnabas's community group, right? Like everybody wants Barnabas to disciple them. And yet he has this moment where he's like, I can't do all this. He doesn't try and do it in all of it in his own strength. I would put it to you this way. He chooses the mission over his ego. And he doesn't just go and get just random help. He thinks to himself, who can I get that's even better, has more ability than what I do? And he goes and gets Paul, and he brings him there. And then it tells us this, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Barnabas goes and gets Paul. And then for an entire year, the people are gathered together. And I don't know, it doesn't give us all the details. I'd love to know like how they broke that all down or how many, you know, like how, what that all looked like. But there's this intentionality of teaching a great many people. And we know that it had an impact because here it tells us for the very first time the people were called Christians. That's a common name. We just sort of like, oh yeah, we're Christians or a Christian church, whatever. But this was where it originated, in Antioch. Think about that. And it was given by the people of the culture who did not believe in King Jesus. They called this group of people Christians. What an amazing impact. Look at the depth of discipleship that's taking place because Christian literally means like little Christ. And so the pagan secular culture is looking out at this group of followers and they're like, they are like, they're becoming like the Jesus that they talk about so much. I mean, imagine if that would be true of us as a church. Not because we're trying to earn anything, it's all been given already, but that we are more and more being shaped into the image and the likeness of King Jesus, so that what would be true of us, like to really kind of reclaim that, that name of Christian, like to be a little, like you're, you're, you're so embodying the gospel, little Christ. And they said this about them. This is where Paul later on, he would write these words to a church in Colossae, um, in Colossians chapter one, and just this, this calling, his, the longing that he has. This is what a beautiful, healthy church 
should embody. He says, him, that's Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You wanna know what our hope is for you if you're a follower of Jesus? is to help send you on mission, to help disciple you, to help you grow, like that we would be a church that's expanding in breadth, but also in depth. As Paul says, I toil for this, but the language here, struggling with all what? His energy. The energy that God provides. Like, we need to rest in the hand of God, not only in evangelism, but also in furthering of like sanctification and discipleship as well. Because you might make the mistake to say, okay, I understand that God converts somebody, but then it's on me to see this new follower of Jesus grow in depth. That's not what the Bible says. No, it's God's energy that he provides, working in and through Paul. And there's toil, right? Paul had sleepless nights. He's shipwrecked. He's beaten. I mean, all these things happen. Why? Because he wants more people to grow in their depth and their knowledge of who King Jesus is. Is And so a healthy church, here's what we got to close with. A healthy church is one that has this gospel breadth, this gospel depth, but also where we see in these closing verses, there's a gospel generosity, that there's this calling to compassion and mercy and love. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up, foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, verse 29, everyone according to his own according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's this major catastrophe that's about to happen. There's gonna be this known need of just very practically, people aren't gonna have enough food to eat, livelihoods, are, things are gonna sort of dry up. It's gonna be tough, tough economic times. There is a massive you know, economic crash, recession that's getting ready to happen. That's what this is communicating. And they get word of it ahead of time through one of the prophets. And so they decide, okay, they determine everyone according to his ability. So you know what that means practically? Not everybody gave the same amounts. There wasn't this notion of like everybody needs to do the same and they're guilting one another into you know, making sure you, you gave enough. No one's looking over their shoulder doing that. It's just like, hey, but let's, we determine together, we gotta do something about this. Like the calling of the church is to enter in. And so then they sent this relief, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so one of the things I wanna close our time with is like practically, how can we apply this? What would it look like for us to be a church that's growing not only in gospel breadth and depth, but in a gospel generosity where we understand the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, that it fuels generosity. It makes us open-handed. When we see when God the Father was open-handed with his son, that Jesus' hands were open-handed as they was nailed to the cross, that he's willing to give everything, suddenly the things that I hold on to suddenly don't quite matter as much. And we become an open-handed people like, okay, Lord, you've given me everything. What can I give to you? Not to earn anything. He set his affection on you already in Christ Jesus. But in response to what we've been given. And so over the last couple of weeks, you've heard mention of this, but I just want to call it to our attention. A very practical opportunity we have is something called the Mishpat Project. And so all of January, we looked at this word Mishpat, which is the idea of justice, a right ordering. And it's about how do we bring this Mishpat or this justice, all right? How do we participate in the things that God is doing? And so I would encourage you sometime this week, go to cpwp.life, swipe over. You'll see a card with this, this picture on it that says, the Mishpat Project. 
And if I could just summarize for you, it's this. We have two organizations that are in need. And we as a church have been given a great opportunity, and I believe the resources are here for us to be a blessing. That for us to be a healthy, flourishing, gospel-centered church, it means we got to continue to grow in gospel generosity. And so Orlando Children's Church is an organization we partner with, all right, and they bring in buses every week. They send them out to many under-resourced neighborhoods all around the community, and they gather these kids together in Maitland, and they disciple them. There's gospel breadth happening, gospel depth, gospel generosity. It's all happening, right? There's many of you that serve there each and every week. We've got a serve day coming up here in the next couple weeks as well. But this beautiful thing that's happening there in reaching these kids, making sure that they feel loved and cared for and seen and not neglected. And in order to have one of those buses go out into a neighborhood, it it costs about $10,000 a year for that. And so we want to sponsor a bus. We were able to do that last year in the first year we did the Mishpat Project. But those expenses like come around again. And so it's $10,000 to do that. And the other organization we're partnering with is Samaritan Village, which is this amazing organization that helps women who've been rescued out of human trafficking. And there's a home that they can go and live in, all right, for anywhere from kind of 12 to 18 months. And there's just this full-on gospel rehabilitation. I mean, where they're ministered to, they're counseled, all right? There's, I mean, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. You imagine the, the help that these women need, the trauma that they've endured, where a calling for men to be protectors has been, they've been abused. They've, they, their trust of men has just been blown up, right? I mean, the, here's, they've been just treated as objects, not as image bearers. And as the church, we can come alongside and say, hey, we can make a difference in one woman's life. But in order for that woman to go through that program, it costs $40,000. And so here we are as a church saying, okay, it's $50,000 to help with these two initiatives. And so we're asking you to give toward it. And this is where, though, it just gets even more incredible. is not only the opportunity of the need, but also the generosity that we get to partner with. Because there's an anonymous donor that said for every dollar that's given, like there's going to be a three to one match. So functionally, we can have $50,000 of impact out in the community, blessing these two organizations by us as a church raising $12,500. And so as even as we met as a leadership team and even in the midst of, you know, there's some things like, okay, we're having to adjust our own budget and stuff like, we got to make this happen. Like we, we there's no reason we, we can't, do this. And will it involve some sacrifice? Yeah, I believe it will. But even just a practical way to frame it is if every adult here in our church was like, all right, I'll give $99, like we would get, we would reach our goal. And so we're asking by next Sunday, February the 10th, um, that you would go there. There's a commitment card to fill in. That doesn't mean you have to even give all the money. It's, it's over the next 11 months. I mean, you literally could set up a pledge. I'm going to give $9 a month over the next 11 months. If everybody did that, we would exceed that, that goal. We'd be able to bless these organizations and see this mishpat continue to happen, this right ordering. So that's the call. And I love that this is something we were able to do last year. I love the opportunity we have to do it again this year. And what we have to remember in this, 2 Corinthians 8 9, this is what we'll close with. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel. May we be a church that's centered around the life, death, the resurrection of King Jesus, the one who emptied himself, the one who became poor, so that we might have the riches of his inheritance. And we get to be a church that goes out and communicates the gospel, that there's a gospel growth, breadth, depth and this generosity where we look at what Jesus has done and we become more and more open-handed and this is a practical way for us to do that 
And so I'm gonna close this in prayer and give us some time to, to reflect and encourage you to take some time in prayer. If you need to be, if you want somebody to pray with you, the members of our prayer team will be in the back corners by the signs. But take some time to confess. Confess your sin, confess your need of the gospel. Take time to celebrate the reality of who Jesus is. And will you ask the Holy Spirit, what, what are you asking me to commit to? What does that look like? Where do you need to get involved? Where do you need to become more generous? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your, your grace, the, your gospel, this good news that we get to proclaim it, we get to rest in it, we get to see it have an impact in our community. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church that we would, that we would become through your spirit more and more like the church in Antioch to be a sending church, to be a church that is generous, a church that takes seriously evangelism and, and ongoing discipleship and sanctification and generosity and all of it. And so we need you. We confess, Lord, that we are fearful. We're fearful to evangelize. We're fearful of taking the next step in our discipleship. We can be fearful of being generous, wondering if there'll be enough for us. But we just, we confess that. We lay it at your feet, our insecurities, our anxiousness, ask you to minister to us, to remind us of the gospel, that we might celebrate that. You know, it might be a people that are committed to your mission. So God, we just ask now that you would hear our prayers, that you would get your glory, and that we, as your people, we'd experience a great joy. And so hear our prayers now, in Jesus' name, amen.